Good morning, everyone. It is great to be back in Amen Bible Study. It's been a couple years, and it's good to see your faces, and it's especially good to participate in Summer Amen. You know, when, when I was here, we, uh, I was very active, of course, in the fall and the winter and the spring, and then when summer came, I kind of disappeared. So I'm, I'm not used to this Summer Amen. It's good to have it. I'm glad you all do it, and I'm glad to join the speakers who are participating this summer. Um, you know, when I was thinking about what we could talk about today, uh, I thought back, you know, in my time here at Second, I think I just about preached through the Bible, or at least I preached out of every book of the Bible, or taught. And uh, I would, you know, plan each year that uh, if amen were in a gospel, then, uh, you know, Sunday mornings would be an epistle, and vice versa, so that there was variety through the week. For those of you who are Second Presbyterian members, you would get a variety from the Bible. So I was thinking about, well, what, what book have I not taught in? And I went online, and you know what? Believe it or not, I, there's nothing there from me on Philemon. I thought, this is a great book of the Bible. We can deal with a whole book in one sitting because it's one chapter. So turn to page whatever in your ESV study Bible, and let's look at Philemon. It comes right before Hebrews. It's just tucked in there, and it's such an unusual letter. It's a personal letter. It's about a personal a moral, ethical issue, about a social justice issue. Uh, it's uh, remote in some ways, and people might wonder, well, why did it, how did it ever enter the canon? You know, you had a, these, uh, when the canon was finally officially confirmed, and I say confirmed because the canon was already in use, because the people born by the Holy Spirit recognized the voice of the Holy Spirit in the inspired scriptures. So, the Bible was already in use before any council declared it as the canon, but it was declared officially in the 4th century. And some people wonder, how did Philemon end up in there? Well, I think when we read it and you think about it again, you'll realize it had to be in there because the Roman Empire uh, consisted, especially in, in southern Italy where we'll be thinking about uh, the city of Rome today a little bit, it could have been 25 or 30% slaves. And here you have Paul urging one of his members to receive one of his runaway slaves as a brother. And you can count on it, every former slave or every current slave in the church in the 4th century would have insisted that this book be in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's the Magna Carta of Christian uh, liberty for slaves. And uh, some people will look at this letter and combine it with the other things Paul said about slavery, which was basically be a good slave and be a gentle master, and will be very critical of his lack of social justice, that Paul should have come out against the entire institution and reversed it uh, publicly. And uh, we don't have time to talk about all that today, but I'll just simply say this. Every New Testament scholar that I read on this book says, this book killed slavery. <laughs> uh, so we'll see that Paul's tactic was... Very interesting how he did it, how he made, led revolutionary social change, but did it in a way that was distinctively Christian. Now, in particular, the reason I want to look at this book beyond the social justice issue, which is the context lying around everything, what you see here is how we as brothers establish our friendships. What's the meaning of our relationship to each other? We all want friends. We all need friends. We all want to make friends. Of course, some of you have too many friends already and you, you don't want any friends. But most people uh, who are normal <clears throat> would like to have friends. And so 
when you come to be a Christian, you realize that this is a, there's a peculiar way that Christians are friends. And I want you to see in this letter the peculiar way that Paul establishes his relationship with brothers. Uh, it has some elements in it that really are distinctive to the Christian experience, and that's the reason I call this uniquely Christian friendship. And I want us to think about our friendships and whether they contain these unique elements that we're going to see in uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, we believe, is in Rome at the writing of this letter. You're aware that there are four letters that are known as prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. This letter is written to Philemon, but we'll see it's also addressed to the church uh, around Philemon, which was in Colossae. So we believe at the same time that the Colossian letter was delivered, this letter also was delivered. As a matter of fact, Onesimus, who is the runaway slave, uh, is mentioned at the end of Colossians as one who is also carrying that letter and bringing a report about Paul's welfare in Rome. So it appears as though these two letters were delivered together from the Apostle Paul. And in this case, it would have been about 1,300 miles. I mean, it's a long, long way. It's a long trip for someone to bring a letter from Paul. So obviously, this was very, very important. Uh, and we'll see the significance of Paul making this appeal to Philemon as a prisoner in Rome. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll read the text. And we'll just read it all the way through, and then I've tried to divide it for us so we can have some sort of a reasonable outline to discuss the issues here. Let's pray together. Father, we are very thankful for the opportunity to be in your house with your people. We thank you for the word set before us, this word that is an eternal word that shall never pass away, that is the truth, the one book we can count on without reservation or hesitation. And we pray today that we may not only believe it, but put ourselves under its discipline and conform our lives to its truths that we may be blessed as the sons of God. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts in this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. Well, here's the situation. It appears as though uh, Philemon owned slaves, which was common not only with upper house clo- uh, households, but even middle-income people would often have two or three slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. It appears as though Philemon owned a slave, several slaves. One of them was a man named Onesimus. Onesimus, it appears, was a runaway slave. There were several ways in which you could escape your master if he were a harsh master or you wanted out. Um, And we'll look at some of those, but one of the ways was just simply to run away and run far away and to try to become anonymous. And there's no better city in the world to become anonymous than Rome. Rome had all kinds of cultures, different peoples from different backgrounds. Slaves and free people dressed alike, and that was intentional. You could not tell a slave from a freeman. So you go to Rome, you can kind of start your life over, you can lie about your background, and most of the time, get by with it. Slaves could do anything in the first century except run for political office uh, uh, or... uh, I believe that was about it, really. You couldn't run for political office. Uh, So uh, he would run to Rome. Now, a further complicating factor, it appears from the letter that Onesimus not only ran from home, but he stole uh, material goods from his master, I suppose, in order to make the trip and to pay for the fare and to have some money to start off with. So apparently he stole something as he left. Now, the situation in first century Rome was that slavery was common, Uh, As I've mentioned, uh, in southern Italy, where Rome is, probably 25 to 30 percent of the population were slaves. Slaves were not only menial uh, workers. Uh, Sometimes you'd have uh, family tutors, educated men, artists, who were slaves. Because historically, Roman slavery uh, was instituted when Rome would defeat an enemy, and then they would take captive their citizens and enslave them. And then following that, of course, their children were born into slavery. Sometimes in Roman slavery, folks would sell themselves into slavery when their debts were so high they had no other way. They were basically bankrupt, had no option, no way to feed themselves or their family. They would simply sell themselves into slavery. 
Now, when we think of slavery, of course, we think of uh, American slavery over the past 400 years, and as we would know it in the 19th century in particular. There are some distinctive differences. Roman slavery was no uh, easy uh, piece of cake, but it was not, uh, it didn't suffer all of the same evils that 19th century American slavery did. American slavery obviously was race-based. It was based upon initially at least what we call man-stealing. It was uh, people being taken against their will uh, from one continent and shipped to another continent. In American slavery, unlike Roman slavery, there was no opportunity for what we call manumission, that is to buy your way out of slavery. If you are a Roman slave, there were ways in which you could collect money and eventually you could pay off the debt that you incurred by selling yourself into slavery. You earned it back, and you could earn your freedom. In American slavery, there was no way to do that. So there were some profoundly wicked elements to American slavery that made it even more inhumane than Roman slavery. When people look at the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, they do wonder why Moses and Paul and Jesus didn't come out more strongly against the entire institution because we know very well now that the last thing that any human wants to be is owned by another human. And what you'll find in the scriptures often is that the prophets and the apostles regulate uh, human uh, error. For example, uh, the Bible teaches clearly, doesn't it, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that we're to be married man and woman one male, one female in a marriage. And Jesus affirms that in his own teaching. However, when you look through the Old Testament, you find our patriarchs sometimes have multiple wives, uh, David and Sol- Solomon. <laughs> how that, I've always wondered, that man, how in the world did he keep 900 women happy? I have no idea. Uh, but you, you look at the, this vast uh, polygamy that's going on in the Bible, you say, what is going on there? Uh, and yet... Uh, Moses will regulate that. Or uh, divorce in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you know, you don't, don't separate from one another, but if you do, remain unmarried or be reconciled to one another. So Paul anticipates your disobedience and then has regulations for you even in your disobedience. So often you'll find when there was an institution that was suffused through the culture and established for centuries, uh, instead of Uh, This little band of uh, Christians trying to be the cultural revolutionaries, they were simply trying to be Christians themselves. Another difference between American slavery and Roman slavery is that American American slavery, the the wickedness of it, was established by a nation whose dominant religious group were evangelical Christians. So think about that. In American slavery, evangelical Christians had enormous political power. So the weight of responsibility upon Americans is much greater than Roman Christians. The Roman Christians were just a little handful of people. They were an embattled and besieged minority. And the last thing they ever thought they would be able to do is to change Rome. Are you kidding me? From coast to coast throughout the Mediterranean, uh, you had the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful uh, empires in the history of the world. And you had Christians who were simply seeking to survive for their life. So they had no political power. When you have no political power, you don't bear the responsibility of those who do have political power. So once again, this, I think, helps explain 
uh, Paul's tactic here. There's no question when you look at what he teaches that he would have been an abolitionist. Now, let's look at the text, and having seen the situation, uh, let's begin to look at it. Let me just mention one more thing. In Roman slavery, it was true that the master had sovereign rights over the slave. There was no question about that. And that was the legal order of the day. So that a slave did not have civil rights of any sort. So, like I said, this is no piece of cake. And in the case of a runaway slave, it was common that he would be severely punished for his uh, leaving the ranch. The reasons are several. Uh, one is that if the master has felt that if you don't punish that, then you're gonna, you've got an uprising on your hands and it's, the whole society would dissolve uh, with runaway slaves. Uh, the other thing was that a man's pride was very much involved in this. He runs his household. He's a dignified man. He's a master everybody would love to work for. He doesn't have slaves that run away. No, his slaves are really glad to be there. That's the image he wanted to project. So it was damaging to a man's pride, as well as his pocketbook, as well as his citizenship in the eyes of the other citizens in his community. So there was much at stake in terms of the ego, the male ego, for a man who had a runaway slave, especially one who stole from him. So this, there's no question what would happen in the Roman Empire in this sort of situation. It's a no-brainer. We all know what's going to happen. And it would either be severe punishment or it would be execution. And the master had the right to do whatever he wanted to do. So when Philemon gets a letter like this, this is unprecedented. This is distinctively Christian. And I'm quite confident that's the reason that the church would insist in the fourth century that this be in the canon, as well as because of the issue of slavery itself. Well, that's the situation. Now let's, let's look at the text, and we want to first of all look at verses 1 through 7. We've noticed before in here, in epistles, that Paul uses typical epistolary form with the first century, but it's typical in form, but not in content. And you'll find distinctively Christian content here. And the first thing I want you to notice in this, it's obvious from the very beginning that Christ is the center of Christian friendships. He's the center. You know, if you've read um, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, you, you see his concept uh, in the Bruderhaus, the, the Brotherhood House that they created in his young adult years before World War II in Germany. And in the Bruderhaus, they, they really tried to cultivate what does it mean to be brothers in Christ? And, and Bonhoeffer goes on to say that it's, it's as though our relationship goes up to the right hand of God where Christ is seated and then back down to the brother. Everything is mediated through Christ. Another way to think of it is everything's in Christ. And probably the dominant phrase actually in Philemon, as it is in Philippians, is in Christ, in the Lord. And you'll find it several times in this letter. So we want to think of friendships and the way we relate to each other. What does it mean to be in the Lord? It's different than just having a good friend next door. So the first thing we're going to see is Christ is the center of Christian fellowship. Now, first of all, look at verses 1 through 3, and we'll see that Christ defines us. If we're in Christ, and my brother is in Christ, Christ is the one who tells us who we are. So how does Paul identify himself? 
Well, he speaks of himself as a prisoner on several occasions. I believe this is the only place where he introduces himself in the salutation of the letter as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Or you could even say a prisoner of Christ Jesus. How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus? You're completely under his domination. He's captivated you. You're his captive. You're completely submissive to his will. That's the way Paul sees himself. And of course, uh, he's using very humble language here because he's going to make an outrageous appeal to a brother. In fact, it's going to be outrageous what he does to both of them. Uh, No one would attempt this without Christ. But Paul begins by identifying himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I think this is so important because when I think about the, the basic elements of longevity and health in your Christian ministry. I can think of several categories. But one category I always include when I talk on the topic is a servant mentality. That's what grants health and longevity to your ministry in your home, in your business, or in the church of the Lord Jesus. And so often you get involved in ministry and you develop a sense of entitlement. This is owed to me or this is what I expect. Paul continually cultivates. Here he's 60 years old. And he's continuing to cultivate being nothing more than a prisoner or a servant in the house of God. You keep yourself low. Keep your expectations where they belong. Remember where you came from. Remember what you were. And Paul never forgot. He was a religious terrorist who killed Christians because they were Christians. He never forgot that. It was the lowest, worst kind of sin. And look what God had done with him. He had saved him. So Paul's not going to get up on some big platform and insist that he have your intention because of the great things that he's done for Jesus. No. He's always a debtor. Always a debtor to the Lord Jesus. Here he is a prisoner. And I think this is the key for our effectiveness if we're going to be effective in Christian ministry of any sort. And then notice the way he defines the one listening to him. Not only the one pleading, but the one listening. Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Our beloved fellow worker. Paul says, you know Philemon, I love you. And you know I consider you a partner in my ministry, a fellow worker. Now, we don't know how Philemon came to know Paul. We don't know how Paul and he were in contact, but it appears very likely Philemon would have probably had the comfort and convenience of being able to travel. And he, just like uh, Epaphras, would have traveled from Colossae to Ephesians. They heard there's, there's a preacher down there, Billy Graham. And he preaches quite regularly. His name is the Apostle Paul. And so they made a trip, it appears clearly, from Colossae down to Ephesus, which was not that far. And they heard Paul and got converted there. Because remember, those of you who have studied Colossians, you know Paul had never gone to Colossae. It appears as though he never made a trip there. But the people in Colossae, the church was planted there, probably by Epaphras. The church was planted there by people who had heard the gospel uh, in, uh, in Ephesus. So it's like someone from Greenwood, you know, coming to Memphis and hearing the gospel and going back and planting a church, you know, in the, in the town. And that's the way it worked there. So this is how Paul came to know him. He, knowed he, he knew him personally, and he also knew him by reputation from Epaphras and also, uh, of course, from Onesimus. 
But he says, you are a fellow worker and you're loved. And brothers, no matter whom, who it is with whom you have a conflict, remember, they're your fellow worker. They're loved by the Lord. You're to love them. They're to be your friend. And you have a lot more in common than you have at odds with each other. You're in Christ. So Paul affirms that right from the beginning. Let's get this clear. Christ is at the center of our friendship, and we're going to affirm that. But then notice, interestingly, in the salutation, when you get to verses 2 and 3, that it's the whole church who's, who's defined. And the church here is defined as ones who are going to be involved in this discussion. It's really interesting. This is a personal letter. Paul is trying to work out this massive problem. He's got a big problem on his hands, but he's going to involve the whole church. Now, here's what likely had happened in Rome. Let's back up for a minute. How did Paul get to know Onesimus? Because Onesimus would not have traveled to, to Ephesus, presumably. So how did Paul know him? Well, Onesimus, it appears, had run away to Rome and tried to disappear. Paul says, he became my son here in Rome. Ah, that gives us the idea, it's very likely that Paul evangelized Onesimus in Rome, not knowing who he was. That he led him to Christ. Onesimus became a believer in Rome, it appears. And then he went to his pastor, Pastor Paul, and confessed what he had done. Now look at the enormous problem that Paul has on his hands. Here, he's he fallen in love with this brother, Onesimus. This dear man who's become a believer and wants to do right. And Paul has every interest in protecting him. At the same time, Paul knows his master. When Onesimus said to him, I ran away from Philemon, Paul goes, I know Philemon, he's a brother in the Lord. Now Paul, look at the other side of his problem. Philemon's whole reputation is at stake here. Philemon has been offended, and justice needs to be done. So Paul is caught between two brothers, one that he probably cares for, for even more, namely Onesimus. But he also cares for Philemon, and it appears as though Philemon also has stature in the church. It appears as though the church is meeting in his house. So the man has some means, and he's using his means to promulgate the gospel. Paul's stuck in a really, really tough place. So what does he do? He sends Onesimus back. Please notice this. The first thing he does is with the brother he wants to protect. The one that is, he, he says in this letter, my very heart, my dear son in the faith. He sends him back to his master and we know 99.99% of the time what's going to happen. He sends him back to his death. Potentially. Why? Because Paul has made his teaching on this clear in a letter he's already written from prison about our obligation in the workplace. We don't steal from our masters. We don't try to please them. We try to please the Lord. And, and we, we seek to obey every word of, of God in our work. And Onesimus has violated that and needs to make amends. So he'll go back at the risk of his life. Now, remember, I told you, he's going back with Colossians also in his hand. Turn back uh, several pages in your Bible. And let's look at Colossians for just a minute. 
and especially chapter 4. Or rather, let's look at the end of chapter 3 on the household rules that we're familiar with from Ephesians. Look what he says um, in verse 22, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 of Colossians. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. You can keep reading and see, he says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Think through what's happening. Uh, first of all, in first century ethics, generally slaves were not addressed. Masters were always addressed to be gentle and kind and humane. And even in Roman society, masters would take uh, pride in their humanity to their slaves. I know that sounds patronizing and condescending, which it is, but that's the way it was in the first century. But Paul, unlike first century Stoic ethicists, actually says, no, slaves, you're human beings. You're human beings just like anybody else is a human being. And you are a brother if you're in the church just like anybody else. And therefore, you've got to take your setting seriously. So no matter what your job is, no matter where you are in the pecking order in your organization, you are taken very seriously, just as seriously as the CEO is taken in your organization as far as God is concerned. So Paul addresses slaves unlike first century ethicists. But look at how he addresses them. Now, this is what's in Onesimus' hand as he goes back. For the wrongdoer would be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. So Paul is sending back this dear man who's become a believer to pay back his obligations and to submit himself to the order of the day at the risk of his life. That's on one hand. But now on the other hand, he has a word for Onesimus. And we'll see how he deals with Onesim, I mean with the Philemon. But notice, back to our point in number three, the whole church is involved here. Well, why is this? Well, first of all, we don't know who Apphia is in verse two, but a lot of people believe, a lot of scholars think, that must be his wife. And in Roman households, the wife would basically manage the household. Uh, you know, in the Roman world, your household and your business were all one. You ran your business out of your house largely. So whatever business you had, it was out of the house. But the woman would deal with the internal domestic affairs and the man would generally handle the business of the household. So he addresses Apphia. Because, you know, if, for example, a second Presbyterian church, all the elders are men. But believe me, uh, we can hear the wives speaking in a session meeting, can't we? Yeah, you can hear them. And I want to hear them. And that's the reason it's very important for how they're selected. You shouldn't be an elder if you don't have a wife who's a godly woman because we're going to hear her through you. And I don't want to hear her if she's not godly and seeking to bring peace and truth and unity to the body of Christ. So it was the same here. Let's address the wife too. Apphia, you're part of this. You're sleeping with this man and you're going to whisper in his ear, let me be sure I'm telling you what I'm telling him so that we're all on the same page here. So uh, it's important for us as husbands and wives, to be on the same page. And then we don't know exactly who 
Archippus is. Some said his son, but it appears to me more likely he's simply a, a known leader in the church. Maybe the clerk of session, who knows. But uh, he is addressing him because obviously he's influential. And then see what he says, and the church in your house. The whole church. Now the pronouns here in this letter are first per, uh, second person singular. So he's addressing Philemon personally. But he, is letting, he wants this letter read to everybody. And you may say, well, that's a fine how do you do. Here's a sensitive issue and he's going to address the whole church. Here's why. This was an outrageous exception to Roman rule. Paul is turning things on its head, which is what Christians should always do. And we should have done in this country hundreds of years ago, turned it on its head. And we didn't because we weren't listening to this letter. But Paul is going to turn things on their head. He knows this is a massive exception. He knows that people wouldn't understand what Philemon does. Even if Philemon does what Paul wants him to do, people would misinterpret it. They would just think Philemon was weak or inattentive to his business affairs. Paul wants everybody to know what's behind this. What's the philosophy behind it? What's the theology behind it? Why would Philemon do such a thing? This letter interprets Philemon's future behavior. It also holds Philemon accountable. And brothers, you've got to be held accountable. In the American culture, every, we're all a bunch of individuals who happen to have common passports. That's kind of the way we look at it. But in Christ, in the church, we're in a family. And we love each other and hold each other accountable. And when it's appropriate, we actually encourage each other and exhort each other in things that have to do with our obedience to the Scriptures. And if you have a healthy family, that's the way it operates. When your children become adults, you'll show more deference and respect. You'll ask for permission to make a comment in a certain area. But you still are connected with them and seeking to encourage your whole family to come along. That's the way it's supposed to be for you if you're a Christian. You find a local church that can really become family and who will have something to do with the ethical decisions you make in your business, who will have something to do with your political opinions, who will have something to do with the way you look at Memphis and engage the social issues here. But this is not just a private matter for you about how you deal with racism or, or socioeconomic disparity that's unfair in our city. It's not just your private opinion. No, you belong to a family. And we're going to hold each other accountable for our opinions. So Paul just takes it for granted because he knows what the church is. That this is our affair. Here is a member of your church that's returning who sinned against his master, whose life is at stake. And here's a master who has a massive ethical decision to make that ultimately will change the world. And you're all involved in this. You all must be an encouragement to him. That's the way we're to look at the church. We're not just a group of individuals. The church is not just a society of people who hold the common belief in a voluntary association. No, we're a family who holds each other accountable. You see that clearly in, in this letter. Now, notice, secondly, when you come to, ver to verses 4 through 6, that not only does Christ define us, but Christ enables us. And I'm going to run quickly through these because of time. First of all, through prayer. I thank my God when I remember you. And Paul's not being flattering. He is telling the truth. He prays for the Coloss Colossian church. And he tells them so. And he tells them also in, in his letter to Colossae that he prays for them and he thanks God for them. If you believe that conversion is a miracle, 
Well, then, of course, you're thanking God for the church. It's a miracle that anybody believes in the Lord Jesus. So through prayer. And then secondly, verse 7, through mutual encouragement. I've derived much joy and comfort from you, from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul says, I'm comforted because you've refreshed so many people in your church. So Paul really honestly feels this way. Do you? Do you have a, such a concern for the church when you see somebody serving the church? Not you, serving others in the church. You're refreshed and delighted because of it. And you thank God for that person. That's how Paul's mind is thinking. And he's encouraging Philemon. He's going to be asking Philemon to do something that's unprecedented. That's contrary to everything Philemon was taught as a boy. And before he does so, he wants Philemon to know for sure that he loves him and has great respect for him. And we'll see that further as we go through the letter. So Christ enables us. Now, secondly, let's move to the body of the letter. It's about time, you know, when it's quarter after seven, you get to the body of the letter. But notice in verses 8 through 16 that love is the standard in Christian friendship. Love is the standard. I want us to see how this love works. Paul, in this letter, I've, I've just put several things here I think we should notice. Let's just work through these. Notice, first of all, in the whole section, Paul honors Philemon's civil rights and his circumstances. And I've already referred to Colossians 3.22. So Paul is aware of what it's going to cost Philemon. Paul is aware of Philemon's civil rights by law. Paul is aware of the social standard that Philemon must live with, that everybody else is doing it this way. And Paul is going to be asking for something different. Paul defers to Philemon as a civil leader. He has, Philemon has certain rights granted him by the Roman government. Paul's a prisoner. Paul's very aware that Philemon's the one who has to make this decision. Paul's not to make it. Uh, some would have wanted Philemon to come with a heavy hand and say, Philemon, I insist now that you deliver not only Onesimus, but all your slaves. One scholar pointed out, if he had done this, he would have been acting like a slave owner. Bossing people around, using his authority to manipulate people, it's the same sort of domination over other people that slave masters were using over slaves. And the scholar pointed out here, you notice Paul's entirely different approach. He's not appealing to his authority to exercise over Philemon. He's appealing to Philemon's heart. And this is what changes the world, is changed hearts. I'm all for public policy, righteous public policy. I'm all for social justice. But without the heart, it's not going to happen. And so Paul is appealing to his heart. And we'll see what difference it makes. So first of all, Paul honors Philemon's civil rights and his circumstances. Secondly, Paul appeals rather than commands. I've already made comment on that. Now, the reason this is so important in our day is not just because of our friendships, but because of our public discourse. I, you know, in my 68 years, I don't recall ever seeing uh, things so uncivil as they are now in the public arena, not just in politics, but in almost anything that's discussed in the media. And sometimes it's affecting us in very negative ways as believers. We, we're tempted to believe that this is normal behavior, that it's acceptable behavior, and it's not. When you show disrespect for someone you disagree with, when you say ugly things about them, not just lies, but even ugly truths 
that are unnecessary to say, uh, that's against biblical norms. And what's uh, tragic in our day is that it is becoming common behavior. There are some studies that have recently been done uh, to investigate and explore what makes people uncivil. And uh, there are a number of factors in this particular study I'm thinking about that uh, show what makes us less civil. One thing is this. When a person finds it uncomfortable or uncommon to speak openly about his difference with someone else, it makes them less civil. In other words, if you are so polite, you never talk about religion or politics and in, in company, so you guard ever bringing out an opinion that someone might disagree with, actually that makes you less civil. That's what the study is showing. Because you're harboring these differences inside, and so when you get away from that party, you're much more likely to be harsh in your tone and uncivil in the way you communicate. Rather, if you go into community and you actually discuss things with people with whom you disagree, you find that when you're apart from them, you're far more civil in your discourse. That's what the study has shown. Now, the study also looked at various religious groups in our country. One of those religious groups was evangelical Christian. For those of you who are evangelical Christian, let me tell you what the study showed. You are the least likely to feel comfortable talking about a contrary opinion with your friends. So you're set up to be some of the least civil people because you have these strong opinions. You know you're right, but you don't want to talk with them about it. It includes evangelism too. So not only in the political realm, but even in the religious realm. Sometimes the more you hold back and don't engage in thoughtful discussion with other people, you become less civil. So... Paul is showing us how to be civil. He is confronting two men who are having to pay enormous prices because he believes the church should be family. And he's engaging them. He's confronting both of them and asking the impossible from both of them in order that they might live as real brothers. And if you're going to be involved in reconciling with someone else, or helping someone else reconcile, just like Paul is doing, you'll find that you're continually doing that. You're opposing both people. They'll both be ticked off at you, probably, if it's a serious rec uh, reconciliation that needs to take place. So, Paul appeals rather than commands. Uh, and then I think I lost my notes at, at that point. Where am I? And I'm going to have to look behind me. Uh, Paul expresses his deep love and respect for the offending party. So you can see that. Let's go to the next one. Paul speculates concerning God's providential purposes. Paul says, how do you know that this one who's been useless up until now is becoming useful? How do you know that God may not, may not have plans for him? So Paul is appealing and speculating to God's providence. And in fact, the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul's using a, a play on words here. He says he's been useless, but now he's come to Christ. He's useful. And not only to me, but he could be useful to you. So Paul speculates about providence. And then Paul reminds Philemon that Onesimus is now his brother. 
when he uses the word brother, most people think that ended slavery. Let me just ask you, how do you enslave? How do you own someone that you see as your brother? Well, let me just ask you this. How many of you have brothers? I have a brother. Can you imagine owning your brother? <laughs> Especially if he's your big brother. Maybe if he's big, your big brother, you could imagine that. <clears throat> but can you really imagine owning your brother? Would you do that in your family? What kind of twisted mind would do that? When Paul calls him brother, that echoes through the ages. There's no way any Christian can rightfully justify slavery when he reads this letter. Now, the problem with American slavery is that they tried. This was the deeper tragedy of it. You had a dominant Christian society that was distorting and twisting scriptures in order to advance their own economy and to improve their own, what they thought was improving their own economic condition. But you can't really honestly read the scriptures and see this. Now let's move to number three, Roman numeral three. The gospel is the secret to Christian friendship. The gospel is the secret to Christian friendship. What do I mean here? Well, let's, let's notice several things. First of all, Paul risks his friendship with Philemon. This could end their friendship. Paul, look, you're a preacher, fine. Stick to preaching. Don't be telling me how to run my business. How many times have I heard something like that? And Philemon could say that to Paul, and it could, it could end their friendship. It could even cause a split in the church. The Colossian church could decide they're going to go off in a different direction because they don't like the Apostle Paul. He's sticking their nose, his nose into their business. Secondly, Paul assumes the cost of the reconciliation. You want to reconcile brothers? Get your pocketbook out. What do I need to pay you? What does he owe you? What would settle this? Let me pay it. Do you hear the apostle? Here this man is broke and in prison. He's offering to repay. I'll raise the money. Whatever he owes you. So Paul's putting both men at risk and he dives in himself and he becomes at risk. And you can't really be a brother unless you're always risking your own relationships and your own welfare for the sake of the family. Then notice... Paul asked for a personal favor from Philemon in verse 20. He says, Philemon, look, I know I'm asking you for a personal favor. Refresh me in the Lord. So, so I, I, am, I know I'm asking a favor. Please grant the favor. So Paul, Paul puts himself in there, not as a creditor, but as a debtor. I want to I become your debtor. Do me a favor. Paul expresses, fourthly, confidence in the outcome. I know you'll do this. <laughs> yeah, I guess I will. Billy Graham told me to. I'm going to do it. <clears throat> so I he expresses confidence in the outcome. So you enter confidently. You know you're dealing with a brother. Give him credit for being a brother. Give him time to repent and think this through and pray it through. And then give him your confidence until he shows otherwise. And then <clears throat> look at verse 22. Don't you love this one? He holds him accountable. At the same time, he says, verse 22, Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. So finally, I know you'll do this, and by the way, I'm coming by. Check you out. So uh, get the guest room ready. So we'll see what you've done. So you see here, Paul is, yes, he's deferring, but he does not abdicate. He does not absent himself. He does not remove himself from this problem. Because 
if Onesimus is not dealt with like a brother, Paul is profoundly wounded and the church is profoundly wounded. And this is the reason that we care about justice in the church and the reason we care about our justice in the community. And the church has to speak on the right side of this. We've got to be family. Because if we don't, there's a tremendous wound to the church in our community. And you all know this very well. It's the reason I'm so glad that with the Memphis Christian Pastors Network, the first thing we did when we talked about the occasions of apparent police brutality and injustice in the country, that when we talked about Memphis, we said the first thing we're going to do, we're going to yoke together as churches in Memphis. And when one of our churches that is smaller or in an urban community has less resources, has one of their youth who are dealt with unjustly, we're going to investigate it. And if it's true, all the churches are going to dive in on this one. We're all one family. We're all going to advocate together. We're all going to go to City Hall and ask for, for a change. So you invest yourself and give yourself, put your own material life at risk in order to follow the Apostle Paul in seeking family relations the way he did. Now, if we had done this 400 years ago, our country would be in a different place, and you and I both know that. What burdens us today uh, is all the continuing social inequities that have to be discussed and approached. But let's remember, we start with the church. We're brothers, we're sisters in, the, in this city as believers in Jesus Christ. Let's just start there. What does family life require? And you'll see Paul entering in with us and saying, can I pay you? If anybody takes something from you, can I pay it back? Even on the issue of reparations that has come to the surface again over the past several years, it's an interesting topic. And what I've always said is I'd love to be in a church where people who feel they've been wounded would just tell the rest of us how much would, would even it up. And let's just take a collection. And let's reconcile within the church. In other words, let's just get it done in the family. Is there unfairness in the family? Let's get it done. Whatever it is. And I can hear the Apostle Paul saying, can I contribute to that fund? Can I give to it? In order that these brothers might really act like brothers in the church. Do you see how important this is? There should be zero tolerance in your relationships within the church for any outages. Zero tolerance with your relationships and the relationships of which you are aware in your church. That's what Paul is saying. He's going to the nth degree to reconcile two people in a church in a remote area. That's what he's doing as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, fourthly, grace is the experience in Christian friendship, and you see it here. Paul, before he knows what Philemon is going to do, he says, we're friends and all my other friends are greeting you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, all of them are saying hello to you. In other words, you're our friend. Paul's taking for granted that Philemon's going to do what is right. And then look at verse 25. Not only are my friends your friends, but my Lord is your Lord. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Philemon. May the grace of God be with you. You see the love that Paul has, even for people he confronts. Because he's confronting Philemon and confronting Onesimus, he doesn't lose his affection for them. No, his affection actually grows. And you'll find that when in your friendships you're insisting upon truth and righteousness to be a part of that friendship, your affection for your friend actually increases even when you're in conflict. Here's the last question we want to ask with the last 60 seconds. Did Paul's letter work? 
Did Philemon obey? Well, let me tell you this. You have the letter in your canon. How do you think it got there? It got there because Philemon did exactly what he was told to do and it became famous. And that's the reason the letter existed. If it hadn't, Philemon had a very special place for that letter. (laughs) Down the commode is where he had to put that letter. This letter exists clearly because Philemon did what he was supposed to do. Now lastly, let me just mention this. Onesimus was not an uncommon name, so there are others with the name of Onesimus, but it is interesting. This is very possible. Ignatius uh, uh, of Antioch was taken prisoner by the Roman government in 110 A.D. That would be 50 years later. He was called to Rome to be eaten by the lions. And on his way, he was allowed to stop off and see several church bishops. And he stopped off in Smyrna, which is on the eastern coast of Turkey, not too far from Ephesus, and not too far from Colossae. And he writes a letter to the bishops of those surrounding cities. And he writes one to the bishop of Ephesus. And in the letter, the bishop's name is Onesimus. <laughs> it's very possible that 50 years later, 20-year-old Onesimus, runaway slave, ends up being a 70-year-old bishop in Ephesus. We don't know for sure. But uh, it's, it's very likely. You never know when you render justice for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of your relationships, when you insist that Christ will be at the center of every relationship, you have no idea what God may be willing to do to empower you and those around you to serve the kingdom. Glory be to His name. And I say along with the Apostle Paul, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this powerful letter that You have preserved for us through the ages. We pray that we will take its lessons seriously, not only in the way that we treat people in our society, but especially the way we treat people in the church, brothers and sisters. Give us the same love that Paul had for Onesimus and Philemon. And more importantly, give us the love that Jesus Christ had, who truly came as a slave and laid down His life, His whole life as a ransom to set free slaves like us. Give us that heart, the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great liberator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.